All right. Hello, lovely people. So we've got this kind of quite meaty bit of James to go through today that has uh, a lot of um, doctrine in it. Um, we're going to try and make it as fun as possible and hopefully as practical as possible because if it's not practical, I'm actually not interested. So we'll hopefully get there. But we're going to start off with my favorite party game because everyone loves a party. Um, to remind you of parties, please sign up and buy a ticket for the Growing Hope Ball. Get your frocks out. And the 1st of April, get a ticket. Anyway, here's the party game that I enjoy. It's um, two, lives and, two lies and a truth. You know this one? Where I'm going to tell you, because I'm up here, three statements about myself. And you're going to tell me which two are lies and which one is the truth. You ready? Okay. Uh, statement number one is, I run 10K every Saturday morning. Don't laugh. Statement number two is, I play the cello. And statement number three is, I'm fluent in Chinese. Which one is the truth, would you say? Oh, some of you know me. All right, that's good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the truth is, unless you know me really well and you've seen, you're, you, it's not really recommended that you believe what I tell you just because I'm saying it. You're going to have to, with these things, you're going to have to watch it, see it. I'm going to have to show you. So, sorry? Oh, yeah, I was just about to say no one should ever watch me running, so uh, that's not going to happen. But uh, I, I have a couple of times run 8K, but I've never made it to 10 in my life, so that one's out. Um, the cello one, the truth is, I was going to bring my cello this morning and put it here as a decoy, but um, I forgot. Uh, I have a cello in my bedroom. I've had it there for three years. And um, I think I probably got it out three times over those three years. And I'm really good at the C major scale on open strings. But no, I don't play the cello. And you also <laughs> wouldn't want me to demonstrate this to you because it sounds like something large is dying at the moment. Um, but I do speak Chinese. And uh, yeah, I know. I was feeling like if someone said that, I would feel like a complete idiot. How about I teach you, okay? I want you to look at someone next to you. And I want you to say, wah. And you have to make that as long as you can, wah. You have to say, and then you say, <laughs> then you say, lei hou leng. Very good, yes. And we can carry this on afterward. Where's Alan? Alan's here. Alan speaks my language, isn't he? Uh, maybe he's, oh, there he is, yes. Yeah, so you've just told the other person how beautiful they are, which is a good thing to learn, yeah. Lei hou leng, yeah. Right, so you need demonstration of who I am to believe it and see it. Does that make sense? And this is kind of what James is talking about in this chapter, I think. He asks us a really direct question and he says, does simply claiming to have faith without ever demonstrating it do anyone any good? And his answer is quite unequivocal, no, it doesn't. Um, in fact, verse 20 says that faith without deeds is useless and in verse 17, he says even more bluntly that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So I think all of us are here because we're hoping to avoid having dead faith. So, um, But this makes sense, right? If we say that we have a belief in God, but we don't end up looking or acting like him, people would do well to be skeptical of our claim to faith. And 
you've probably heard that one of the most common reasons people give for dismissing uh, coming to faith in Christ is how much hypocrisy they see in the church. And unfortunately, many times they're not wrong about that. Um, I, a friend sent me a, a, someone's testimony yesterday, and I'll share a little bit of it. Um, it was from a, an American who's apparently a famous theologian, but he started off life as a really precocious, intelligent young man who was reading philosophy and studying science and was an avid atheist. And his quote in this interview that he did about his story of coming to Christ, he said, I didn't think it could be true because it looked to me like most Christians didn't live like it was true. I mean, if I really believed there could be eternal life, if I really believed there could be a meaning in life, and if I really believed that there was a God who had created me, I would give him everything. But it seemed to me that most Christians didn't really live that seriously for God, so I thought, well, if Christians don't believe it, why should I believe it? Okay, so that's a little bit um, heavy, but actually, it really made me think when I heard this, and I'll tell you a little bit more of his story a bit later. Um, so how do we make sure that we're living in such a way that people look at our lives and think, yeah, I think that person does have faith. I said I could run 10K and you all laughed. Okay, how could I live as a Christian where I could say I follow Jesus and people don't laugh, right? <laughs> that would be a good goal. So James uses two examples in this passage. They're Abraham and Rahab. And um, just as an aside, I love the fact that these are the two heroes of faith that he talks about, because one is this towering figure, Abraham, the father of faith, and the other is a prostitute. And they are given equal footing in this passage as examples of people who demonstrated their faith in God. I love God's heart in that way. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, let's look at Abraham, and this is what James said about him. If I can read the tiny print in my Bible. Do you all have these paper Bibles with turnable pages? Anyone have those anymore? They're quite good. Um, what do I want to read? Uh, 21. So from verse 21, he says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So this is the story of Abraham calling out to God for descendants. And he's unable to have a child. And God promises him that he will have more descendants than, than there are stars in the sky. And this says, Abraham believed God's promise, and that belief made him righteous. God did give, as we know the story ends up, God did give Abraham a son Isaac, and his descendants are the Jewish nation and the diaspora around the world. And James says that Abraham was considered righteous when he offered his son on the altar. Do you remember this bit of the story? So he has the child miraculously when Sarah's 90 and he's 100, it's impossible. God's promise comes true. And then God tests Abraham's faith further and asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham amazingly obeys. I'm not sure I would have, but Abraham did. And God, of course, stops him at the last minute. You know, he's got the wood and he's got the altar. He's actually put his son on the altar. He's got a knife there. 
It's quite a scary story, actually. And God stops them and says, I see that your heart is to obey me. Here's a ram caught in the thicket. And it's this amazing prophetic picture of of the heart of our Father God, of a heart of a father who's sacrificing his son and of the sacrificial lamb that, that gets slaughtered instead of the human. It, it's a beautiful picture. So James is saying, because Abraham went to that length and followed God, we know that he has faith. And then we come back to Paul, and Paul writes about this same story as well. And this is where there's some um, debate, I guess, about how is it that we prove our faith. So Paul in Romans 4, is it going to be up here? Maybe. Paul in Romans 4 says this, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, which is generally considered too old to be fathering a child, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Poor Sarah. Anyway, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. And this is why it was credited him, to him as righteousness. Now, I think this story is r- remarkable because it says that Abraham didn't waver. I would say that sleeping with your employee to produce a child is a pretty big waver. Like, I think he's called this great man of faith, but actually he wavered. And I love that when Paul is recounting his story, it's forgotten, it's forgiven, and there's grace over his story. So... I I just think that's really exciting. So, it was credited to him as righteousness, and these words, it is credited to him, were written not only for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All right. So, this is one of the most pivotal Pivotal, pivotal doctrines of the Christian faith is that we cannot ever do anything that makes us justified before God, but that our righteousness comes only through our faith in what Jesus did for us on the cross. The analogy is that just as it was impossible for Abraham to produce a child from his body, in the same way we have no ability to make ourselves righteous or justified. Do you remember last week, when Ben did the first bit of this chapter, he said God's standard is 100% perfection. Do you remember that? And I don't think any of us would claim that that's where we are. But the beautiful thing that God has done is he has come down to where we are so that we can go up to where he is. He's, He's made us up to his standard when we choose to have faith in him. It says he made himself nothing, being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of that, we get lifted up to the standard of God. So, turn back to the person that you just told them they were very beautiful and tell them, do you think you are righteous? Are you righteous?
Okay, Who, put your hand up if you said, yes, I'm righteous. Okay, put your hand up if you said, mm, not generally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, the truth is, you are righteous, okay? Which is good news, right? <laughs> um, I know that it probably didn't look like that yesterday or this morning when you were struggling with your kids to get out here or whatever. But the thing is, the moment that we choose to believe in Jesus and in the work that he did on the cross, to take our sins on himself, to be punished for them in the place of our, us, the moment we believe this, that moment we are made completely righteous. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and there's no sin that is outside of the power of his blood. There's no sin that's outside the reach of his kindness and his grace. And so God sees you as completely righteous in the same way that Jesus is. And the, the Bible is actually astoundingly clear about this point throughout the epistles. They say over and over again, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves holy enough, nothing that we can do to earn our own righteousness, except the simple grateful act of trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross. So other faiths teach us that we are judged by a God or gods who keep a record of our good deeds versus our bad ones and they tally them all up and there's a great celestial scorecard and one day we'll get judged on that. And um, some of us may have been taught to believe that that's how our God is, but actually nothing could be further from the truth biblically. This is the gospel and it's good, good news. We are not made righteous by our own works, but we are made completely righteous by the work of Jesus on the cross. Is that all clear? It's good news, okay? So, the question is, what is James talking about then? Why is he saying, in verse 24, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone? Is James disagreeing with Paul? Well, to quote Paul himself, certainly not. Both Paul and James are writing about different outworkings of Abraham's faith. So Paul begins with Abraham's initial decision to trust in God's goodness and to believe the promise. And this is the moment he sort of begins to follow God. And I think that's analogous perhaps to the moment in our journeys when we decide that we believe what God says about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he died to make us both whole and holy, and we invite him to cleanse us and to live in us. Our faith in Jesus wipes away all our sin, makes us completely righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So, and that's where that term born again kind of comes into our lingo. We're born again, we become like a new baby, cleansed by his blood, completely, completely made new. But like human infants, we're never meant to stop there, are we? We're meant to mature in Christ. You know, it's great to have a baby, but if the baby doesn't start to grow, uh, and especially grow on a certain, you know, the milestones that the baby has to reach. If that isn't happening, something's gone wrong. And scripture is full of admonitions for us to grow up, to leave spiritual milk, to start eating solid food. There are all these pictures about growing up from that brand new, innocent, wonderful baby, which we are, into a mature man or woman following God made in his image. So what I think that James is saying here is that if we're not producing the fruit of faith, 
that we do not have a faith that's alive and growing. So that's why he says it's useless or it's dead. Jesus says something really similar in John 15 in his teaching on the vine and the branches. Do you remember that one? Um, And this is the teaching that helps us begin to figure out how we're going to be producing the fruit. So when we read some of this in James, it can lead us to sort of a bit of like, I'm going to white knuckle my way to being good and doing good. And there can be so much guilt and condemnation. And that is not what's being said here. That's not what I'm saying. And it's certainly not ever what God says. It's this kind of combination of the faith that Paul's talking about, but growing up into our faith and proving that our faith is alive and growing. So this is what Jesus says in John. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is uh, more encouraging than it sounds. (laughs) If you are feeling like you're in a season of having things cut off and pruned, it means you're going to become more fruitful, okay? So hang in there. Um, It means God's pruning because he sees fruit in you and he's producing more of it. Uh, If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is for my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. And so I think this is living faith and this is where it begins. It's being attached in relationship to Jesus. It's not trying to produce the works apart from being remaining in him having this relationship of love with him, listening to him, obeying him, staying in intimacy with him, allowing the Father to prune and correct. We're meant to bear fruit that lasts. So I think there are kind of two kinds of fruit that we should be seeing in our lives, an inner fruit and an outer fruit. The inner one comes in our ability to listen to God, to hear what he's saying, to trust him, to grow in likeness to him, to grow in our character. So this is where all those Galatians 5 lists of fruits comes, uh, the fruits of the Spirit. As we're connected to him, as we're staying in touch with him throughout the day, we begin to grow more full of love and joy and peace. We begin to become more gentle. We learn to control ourselves better. All of those things that are in that list grow in us as we stay connected to him as the vine. The outer fruit is growing in obedience to him. We've been listening to him, we've been staying connected to him, and we're growing in obedience to him, and we're learning to walk as Jesus walked. We're learning to be like Jesus, do what Jesus did. What was our thing? Be with Jesus. Oh, this is is exactly that, that's amazing. Be with Jesus, become like him, and do the things that he did, right? This is what we're talking about here. Um, I wanna ask you a few things. What are your best ways of staying connected to Jesus, of abiding in the vine or, or you know, remaining in him? So anybody, can anyone throw out some things that help you do that? Worship, says Mr. Gall. Prayer, Kayla. Yeah. 
Reading the Bible is not a bad idea, yeah? Reading the Word of God, yeah. Meditating on the Word, memorizing it, keeping it in our hearts, talking about it as you're on the bus and walking around, yeah. Speaking it to yourself. <laughs> I have to, sometimes when I get down in the dumps, I have to say to myself, whoa, <laughs> this is the truth, listen, and speak, speak the gospel over myself, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we need to have these things where we're with him all the time, sorry? Conversations with each other, that really helps, doesn't it? It helps me anyway, to hear what, what God's saying to other people. So all of these ways of we're cultivating this daily relationship with him, then we're gonna be growing in these things. Now, when we're gonna start seeing the outer fruit as we grow the inner fruit. What do you think some of those things, why don't you talk to that same person? What are the, some of those outer workings of our, uh, of, what are the, the works, the acts, the deeds that James is talking about? Have a chat with your person. You've got one minute, so go for it. Okay, let me hear back from you. Give me some ideas of what kinds of things might we see if we are putting our faith into action. Shout it out at me. Sorry, say that again. New life. Who is that? Wave at me. Ah, hi. Kos. Um, what does that mean? I'm going to interpret Koss's words. He might mean something completely different. But um, I think it means we're seeing people around us come to Jesus. We're seeing people around us start to be excited about God. Um, yeah, that's great. Is that what you meant? Excellent. Yeah, we're seeing new life. We're seeing people affected for the kingdom, people hearing about God, people experiencing God. Yeah. Good. Anyone else? Joy, yeah, that's, that's one of those inner ones. Yeah, that's really good. And obviously, it's a thing people can see as well, right? We don't want to be Christians who go around looking like um, a cloud, do we? It's not that helpful for Jesus. <laughs> okay, what else? What other outer works are we seeing? Nita. Loving your neighbor as yourself, yes. And that has to look practical. This is what he says in that. It's no good if you say thoughts and prayers, but you don't actually feed or clothe someone. Really practical, yeah. Marjorie, did you have something? Oh no, I thought you were waving at me. No, all right. Forgiving, not so easy to do, is it, Sarah? But yeah, that's an outer working. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, Teresa, could I tell a little bit about your story? Is that all right? All right then. <laughs> She's like, what choice do I have? I, I'm, I'm telling you this story just because, not, not to say this is what I've done, but just to say how really easy it is, okay? So I was about 18 months ago, two years ago, something, going down Cranfield Road to Sainsbury's to buy something. Um, Teresa says I was eating ice cream, but I'm sure that's a malicious rumor. But um, 
she was coming out of her flat and she was hobbling quite badly on her stick. So I could have walked by, but I really felt Holy Spirit said, talk to her and try and pray for her. That's not that fun, as in, no, it is actually fun, but it's scary, right? There's a, there's a, a thing to overcome, right? So I just like had a little chat and then I said, what's up with your leg? And she told me and I said, I try and follow Jesus, could I pray for your leg? And she said, oh, all right then. And so I did and the leg didn't get healed. <laughs> and then, um, yes, exactly, you did. Yeah, so then we went on our way, but then Teresa's come and become part of the volunteer team in our food bank. And as she's been coming along, she's been transformed actually in very many ways. And um, so it's that easy. It's that easy of staying in the vine, listening to Jesus, and then on your way to Sainsbury saying, oh, shall I do something? Shall I speak to that person? This is, this is fruit and fruit that lasts, yeah? So we've got all these, all these different ways of showing our faith in action. Some of you, I, I wrote a whole list of the amazing things that people in this church do. Some of you have taken jobs that work in the environment or work in social care or are making policy that, that makes changes in this country. Some of you are going on mission trips to other countries. Some of you are um, looking after people so well. Um, Sarah Ajayi was talking about how in her job as a civil servant, she prays for each client she sees and gets a word from God about how to speak to them. This is, this is the actions, this is the stuff that we're meant to be doing. This is faith shown by our deeds. And excitingly, this is the whole thing that Jesus has invited us to join him on. From the very beginning, our tasks as humans were to take care of the earth and to multiply the image of God throughout the earth. So we are meant to shine like him, look like him, and affect other people so that we're, we are restoring this world to the state it was in, at Eden when people were perfectly made in his image and the whole world is full of little images of God. Isn't that exciting or am I the only one? I just think that's such an exciting thing and we get to do it, okay? Um, just to say again, this is never to come with condemnation or guilt or you should be trying harder. We cannot strive our way into this, but what we can do is accept his invitation into intimacy. He invites us to be with him, to be loved by him, to laugh and cry with him, to open our deepest hearts to him, and to begin to know the secrets of his heart and his character and who he is. And it's out of this place that we begin to bear fruit. I think when we do this, we'll begin to get God's heart for the world. We'll begin to become sometimes brokenhearted for the oppressed and the suffering just as he is. And we'll have our eyes open to see the people who don't know him and who are longing for the wholeness and the fulfillment that only he can bring. We'll trust him and his good heart for us in our lives and we'll begin to grow in peace and love and joy and the other fruits of the spirit as well. Um, just to finish the story of that um, theologian that, who was the the angry young atheist that I told you about. His story was quite funny to me, and again, I'm telling this because it, it just shows us that all we need to do with this is just take a try, just take a stab at it. So he was on his way home one day, and this group of um, fundamentalist Christians, you can ask Brandon about these ones, um, they accosted him and basically did everything wrong, in my mind, and told him, you know, handed him a piece of paper and told him, you know, there's judgment for people who don't follow God, and it was quite like fire and brimstone. 
Um, but the, the thing is that he says in his testimony, I am the kind of person who never would have come into a church, and these people came out on the street to find me. I found that so moving because there's so many people out there who are looking for him, looking for meaning. We've got to get out of here and find them. And the fortunate thing is we're only here an hour and a half a week, so the rest of your week you are out there, we all are out there, and we can be finding the people who are ready and waiting. My, my thing with Teresa is God was looking for her and she was ready, and I just happened to walk by. And there are so many people that we're gonna be seeing at work, on the streets, our neighbors, people we know, people we don't know, who are waiting. They might not tell you this, they might be angry and, you know, anti-God, but in their hearts, they're looking for meaning, they're looking for something. Um, so even through this fire and brimstone kind of preaching that I would never encourage anyone to do ever, God got a hold of this man and he's turned his life around, he's now a, a theologian preaching gospel. So um, I just want to encourage us that we've been given so many riches We've been given grace and salvation and freedom and justification and all these things. What are we doing with them? How are we spending them? How are we using them? Would, would someone look at our lives and say, yes, I can see your faith by your actions. I can see your faith by your deeds.